Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is September 11th, 2012. It's Tuesday, and we're going to do episode 978 of the Survival Podcast today. It is fall. It's beautiful fall weather, at least where I'm at, and hopefully it is for you too, and it's time to do this type of show I usually do a few every year, and this will be really the first one. We touched on this quite a bit with the interview with Stephen Scott from Terroir Seeds uh, last week, but today is going to be just me and uh, talking to you about what you should be doing right now for your gardening and all of the things that are associated with gardening with kind of your, your homestead, whether it's urban homesteading or suburban homesteading or rural homesteading, doesn't matter. Uh, this is going to be kind of universal. And I'm going to give you some really cool tips and tricks today. I'll bet you if you listen to it, you'll learn at least one or two things that you never heard before, never thought of before. For some of you longtime gardeners, I promise you some of this is going to be old hat, but there will still be things that you probably be like, wow, I didn't even think that I could do that. That's my commitment to you today, and uh, let's get on with it. Before we do, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is the Free State Project. Did you know you can vote with your feet? That's right. You can vote a lot of ways. You can vote with your money. Where you spend your money says a lot about what you support and what you don't. You can vote on election day by, you know, clipping out a chat if they still do that or pushing a button or ticking a box or writing in someone you actually believe in or what have you. Uh, but you can also vote with your feet. In fact, that's what the American Republic was founded on. That's why we have states in America, not just one giant thing called America. It's not just regions or provinces. It's states. Independent states that have their own level of sovereignty that collectively uh, function as a federal republic. And that's so that people can vote with their feet. It's very easy to pick up and leave a place that's kind of stupid, like, say, New Jersey, with the way they run their government, and go to a place that's headed toward freedom, like New Hampshire. That's what the Free State Project's all about. And uh, you can learn more at freestateproject.org. I want to note a couple things here. One, you can help them even if it's not in the cards to move to New Hampshire. The more we can prove liberty in any place works, the better it is for all of us fighting for liberty, no matter where we call home. In essence, I've learned that I'm a Texan, uh, even though I wasn't born there. That's where I need to be. Uh, but I will always support the Free State Project by speaking at their events, by doing things like featuring them on the show. This is the one sponsor that doesn't pay to be here. I give them this sponsorship slot, so basically I sponsor them. Those are a couple ways I'm supporting them, so you can support from for them by writing for them, by going to their events, what have you. Uh, Liberty Forum 2013 will be coming up. I'm expecting an invitation to speak there. Love to meet some of you guys there, so maybe you start planning for that now. That should be in February of 2013. Next up today, harvest eating. We're going to talk about fall gardening today. I'm going to talk to you about things like kale. A lot of people have never really eaten kale. They don't know what to do with it. It looks like this leafy stuff you grow for ornamental purposes. You know who can teach you to cook with kale and make it really, really awesome? Chef Keith Snow. He can teach you to cook with some other things we're going to talk today about, like chard and beets and leeks and all kinds of cool stuff. Why? Because he believes that, that cooking is a life skill, and it is a great way to help uh, build local communities because you start cooking seasonally and locally. You start building your local community and building families because the family that eats together stays together. I really believe that. I think Keith does, too. He's also a prepper, very friendly to our community, and a multi-time guest on the show. He also has his own TV show on Royal Free Delivery TV. You can look it up. But his website is HarvestEating.com, and while you're there, get some of his seasoning and spices. Low and Slow Barbecue, my new favorite. Still, uh, Really, it's a close tie still with the Montreal Steak Seasoning. Check those out. Check out his site. Check out all his great stuff, and we'll have him on again soon. We really need to do that. Um, next up, love to meet some of you guys in Hickory, North Carolina. One more time, I'm basically announcing it. Self-Reliance Expo, uh, 15th and 16th in Hickory, North Carolina. Love to meet you guys there. Full details have been published about the early meet and greet. Hope to see a lot of you guys there. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you'll get exclusive content available only to members. You'll be supporting the show at 20 cents an episode. You'll get discounts to over 30 different supporting vendors now that help support the show. And with that, I'm ready to get into the main topic of today's show. Before I do, I want to actually, I don't know if apologize is the right word, maybe explain a little bit about yesterday's show. Uh, I had quite a few comments from people that said, dude, you were fired up, shot out of a cannon, off the top rope, things like that. 
it didn't seem to bother anybody, but it bothered me a little bit maybe that I got a little too wound up, especially in the first half of the show. Um, I talked about some things that were scams yesterday and some things that are just being done in the name of liberty and freedom and preparedness that are detrimental to it. And sometimes I get these questions from the audience that are like, man, you should know better by now. And sometimes I tend to forget that maybe the person asking that question has been listening for a week or two and not for four and a half years. And sometimes I get a little bit too fired up and I get a little bit angry. And one thing I want you guys to understand, I'm never angry at you who asked the question. I'm never angry at you, the audience. I'm angry at the marketplace that has created these scams, that has created this yellow journalism around everything the government does. Because there's plenty the government does wrong. There's plenty the government does to step on the face of a liberty-loving person. And we don't need to lie about it. I got an email recently from somebody about Michael Adams. And why don't you rekindle the relationship and are on the same side. And my response was simply, a lie in support of your cause is no help for your cause. And I don't deal with liars. I don't deal with scammers. Period. I don't deal with rip-off artists. I don't tell people where to price their product, and I can think someone's priced a little high, but it's still okay. But we know when somebody's gouging or ripping people off or just screwing people over. And when it comes to alternative media, we can look at it with an open mind, and we can realize when people are pointing out true injustices and when people are just taking it over the top for the purpose of sensationalism and try to do, outdo the next sensationalist. So if I, if I was a little too charged up yesterday, I'm sorry. And if you were someone who was listening for one of the first few episodes yesterday and you couldn't follow some of it because I went too fast or whatever, give me another shot. I think today's show will be in a totally different gear and a totally different mindset. And I hope it really helps you guys out with your walk toward individual food sovereignty because that's when we talk about gardening permaculture, homesteading, livestock. I want you to understand that that's what I'm working for for you guys. It's not going to be the case that very many of us are actually going to be, become 100% self-sufficient with our food. But sovereignty is something that always occurs in percentages anyway. When we look at food sovereignty, it's, it's well, what percentage can we produce for ourselves and what percentage can we have 100% choice over? And that's, that's where I want you moving. So it may not ever be that you get to the point where you can grow all your own food. I, I think it's actually kind of self-defeating to try to do that because it requires so much effort and it requires you to do so many different things, whereas you and your neighbor could just be trading apples and figs and half of the quotient, the quotient for fruit is done. And it's much easier than trying to grow everything yourself. Um, you know, if you have another neighborhood with a freaking walnut tree, imagine how many walnuts three people can share out of one mature walnut tree. Just a couple examples to kind of broaden your mind. And then we look at farmers markets and CSAs, local growers, and things like that. And we start to realize there's no need to be 100% independent, but we can be very sovereign. And it starts with self-production to be a sovereign. Because then you start to realize the value of food. And the person down the road that worked really hard to produce something for you, yeah, you're willing to pay a dollar a pound more than you would at Walmart, but you're getting to make the choice. You're even aware that it's there. And you're building the market by participating in the market. That's why this is a survival topic, a self-sufficiency topic, and a self-reliance topic. It's beyond going out and pulling food out of your backyard and putting it on your plate and eat it. That's a huge part of it, but it's a stepping stone in that direction. I want to set the mood with that today. So let's get into some cool stuff that we can be doing. I want to start out kind of with, let's talk about just taking, like you got those garden beds out there. And for some of you, you've got a lot of production left out of your fall crops yet. You've got a long growing season. Some of you, it's coming to an end really, really soon. But somewhere in the, 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 the kind of tick of things, you're going to have to decide, okay, I'm going to put this bed to sleep, and I'm going to garden again next spring, or I'm going to take this bed through the fall into the winter and get another uh, succession of crops out of it. And for a lot of us, the, we can look at things like you know greens and chards and beets and carrots that are so quickly producing even in cold weather that we may have more beds than we want to take through. So some of us might say, well, I have eight main garden beds and I'm going to take four that I rested last fall and I'm going to bring them through as, as gardens I'm going to actually maintain with protection or whatever. And the four that I've gardened the fall with last fall, I'm going to put those kind of to sleep in some way. But at some point there's a chance to do some maintenance, either as we're successing from one crop to the next or as we're just kind of putting the bed to sleep. So I'd like to talk about 
uh, four things with bed maintenance and how that plays out. First one I want to talk about, we got into a little bit with terroir seeds, but then I got some questions about it on the blog, and I realized I really need to do this on the air, and that's using charcoal or biochar. Biochar is simply any biological thing that's been burnt to charcoal. And what I've noticed about charcoal uh, over the years in like gardening forms, permaculture forms, is a really stupid statement that's often made by someone that sounds like they know what they're talking about that just doesn't. And that'll be, it's very important to use horticultural charcoal, not store-bought charcoal. Now, this statement's dumb for a variety of reasons. Hold with me here. I'm not going to tweak out like yesterday or anything, but I, but I do want you to get this. Number one, where do you get your horticultural charcoal? I would expect you get it from a store. So it's still store-bought. I don't think many people get their horticultural charcoal from the horticultural charcoal fairy. Number two, it presupposes something that's not true. And that is that, ch that charcoal briquettes are charcoal. They're not. They're charcoal briquettes. And that's what the statement really should be. Don't use charcoal briquettes. So, But it comes out as don't use charcoal that you would use for cooking. Well, charcoal is charcoal is charcoal is charcoal is charcoal. It's charred wood. And, and hopefully hardwood is what you want to make charcoal from. So then we need to ask ourselves a question. Why does charcoal do so much for our soil? And here's what we learn when we ask that question. It's not so much the carbon that we're putting into the soil. It's somewhat beneficial, but it's kind of inert. Uh, it, it may bond with a little bit of nitrogen and break down over time and, and, and create some, some organic matter composting type situation, but it's been burnt and really the process of carbon and nitrogen coming together is a heat thermal process. So since that thermal process has already occurred with the carbon wood that we're putting into the soil, it's not really good for that anymore. It just kind of sits there, lasts a very long time. But what it does is it gives the soil structure. If you've ever taken a piece of charcoal, not a briquette, but a piece of charcoal and broken it, it just kind of shatters. And you look in it and there's all these little crevices and caves and holes and things like that. And one of the things we need to understand when we're thinking about what we're doing when we create structure in our soil is think about healthy soil and what is in healthy soil. If you have a cubic meter of healthy soil, you have over five hundred kilometers, right? Two hundred and some odd miles of fungal hyphae. Those are the little strings of, of fungus in a square meter. Call it a square yard. So 260, 280 miles of fungal hyphae in a square yard of soil. So we're in you know standard measurements that Americans more typically think of. Okay? That's a lot. And that means that the structure is inherently important. We need things like little globs of water in the soil. In fact, when we have nice, healthy, well-structured soil, and it's moist, if we look in there with a microscope, it looks more like a pond than dirt. Though these little globules of water, water will form a sphere around a single dot, a single speck of soil. And that'll be like a little water world, and there might be thousands of little creatures swimming around in there. That's how cool the soil is if we treat it right. We put this charcoal in there and we hold more moisture. We create these structures. And those little openings form places that the hyphae, the fungal hyphae can get into. Little pockets of water, little tiny lakes. And all of this together combines with this structure and it's like giving the body something that will make the body function better, even if it's not a direct, um, a direct boost to the body. Right, So if we exercise, we're not actually putting anything into our body, but since our muscles are functioning better, our mind is functioning better, the things that we do eat for nutrition, we process better. That's what charcoal is. It's like exercising the soil, and it all comes from the structure. So if we put a charcoal briquette in there, we don't do that. Uh, people say, well, there's you know toxic binders and things like that, and maybe some of that, but that's not really the issue. Not for me. The issue for me is a charcoal briquette is basically charcoal dust, pressed together and bound together, and I don't get all that great structure. So if I want a cheap source, easily accessible of charcoal to put in my soil, do I need horticultural charcoal? If I get a great price on it, fine. You know, If I get biochar from my local uh, gardening spot and it's comparable to the price of something called lump charcoal, fine. But if you go down to your local box store and buy a sack of what's called, again, lump charcoal, which is not briquettes, and it's what all really good barbecue cooks want to use anyway, is lump charcoal. And when you open that up, you'll see pieces of wood that are charred, 
right? It'll be raw wood. It'll be sticks and knot hole pieces and stuff like that. That'll work just as good as any other charcoal. So you can use that. Now, here's, here's what you tuned in today for, right? This is the Jack Spirico top secret super way to get biochar for your garden on an ongoing basis at no real cost. If you grill, and if you grill with charcoal, start grilling with lump charcoal. When you get home, don't take your bag of lump charcoal and dump it into your grill. When you do that, you'll get a whole bunch of dust and little tiny pieces that kind of choke out the fire anyway, and they don't really do any good to be in there. So take your, your bag of charcoal and reach in and your gloves if you don't want to have to wash your hands or don't, and just wash your hands, which is what I do, and pick out pieces of charcoal and build your fire that way. By the time you get to the bottom of your bag, you'll have about a good, I'd say, you know, pint to two pints of like dust and small pieces. And those are completely useless for the grill. If you had dumped them in the grill, they burn up so fast, they don't have any duration, but they have all that great structure. Dump those into a bucket somewhere. Keep doing it until you have enough for a bed amendment. And if you cook all year, especially me, I love to barbecue in the spring and the fall, you can get several five-gallon buckets of biochar that way at no real cost. That doesn't mean you don't do additional, but that would be another way. Another thing you can do is if you're fond of doing outdoor fires and you burn hardwood, when you're burning your hardwood, set up a little place to the side that has like you know some concrete or rock or gravel, someplace where this is safe. And as some of your hardwood gets down to where it's kind of just a piece left of it, you know, like the log was, you know, two feet long and now it's like eight, ten inches and kind of that, and it burns off to a point, you know, you've all seen campfires that way. You know, use some tongs or whatever, take that out, set it to the side of the fire, maybe even mist it down a little bit to keep it from burning itself into ash and let it sit there. There's your biochar, right? And if you do, you know, a fire every week and you take four or five of those, you start to build up and you can still, again, you can still buy horticultural charcoal or a couple bags of lump charcoal and improve your bed. But these are ways to add this stuff to what you're doing and it does amazing things. So one of the things we can be doing in the fall is adding charcoal to our soil. Uh, the next thing we can be doing is heavily mulching. And I think that if you're not going to do any planting at all in your bed for the winter, you should put at least eight inches of mulch on top of it. Now, here's the good news. That can be if you have a place with, you know, like weeds growing real tall and everything like that, as long as they haven't gone to seed, you can go out with like a sickle or a scythe and or a sicket, and you can just start cutting stuff and throwing it on top of the beds. I do it all the time. A lot of times what I'll do is I'll grow things like Caius oat uh, or vetch or other cover crops, not in my garden beds, but around my garden beds. Buckwheat is another. I grow that all summer long. I grow buckwheat. And I just constantly cut it and throw it on the bed. So I'm constantly building up mulch. Now, the beauty of that mulch when you do it that way as opposed to going off to the store and buying straw or wood or whatever is that mulch has come from your property. It's mined the minerals that are deeper in your soil, and it's made them bioavailable to the plants that are right there. You're using the inputs from your property. It's more self-sufficient, but it also works better. Now, there's nothing wrong with bringing an additional mulch, but it's a great source. Another source of mulch is wood and wood chips and things like that. And here's the great thing about that. This is a great time of year to go out and trim trees. And when you trim trees, a lot of times you get some good firewood, but a lot of times you have a lot of kind of pieces, tree branches, things like that, that are really too small to use for firewood. Well, you go rent a shredder at Home Depot or Lowe's, and you shred it up. Ah, what if you live in the suburbs and you have like one tree to take care of, and it's just not that much, and what do you do? Well, one of the things you can do is you can drive around when other people start doing this process and gather up the stuff that they put out to be thrown away. It'll be all nice sized in packages. You get a bunch of free firewood that way that you can make charcoal out of or using your, your, you know, using your, uh, your, your fireplace as well. It's a great way to get free firewood in the suburbs. But you can maybe build up a pile and when you have a big enough pile, go rent a shredder. What else happens this time of year? Leaves fall from the sky. I'm telling you, it's worth renting one of those freaking $30 a day shredders, even though you could buy a cheap shredder to do leaves just because it'll do all of it so freaking fast. Uh, but you could go around in the fall and you could get tons, literally tons of bags of leaves uh, just by picking up the bags of leaves, run those through a shredder, get shredded leaves, and that's great mulch. It's much better shredded than whole. They don't blow away. They stay put. You can mix them with other things. Those leaves mixed with woody mulch are fabulous mulch. So those are some other things that you can do. Very low cost. And the cost of renting a shredder for a day and the gas to drive around your neighborhood and pick up free mulch 
will cost you less than 10 bags of mulch and do far more for you. get so much more and so much more quality. So those are just some other things to think about. But I think the better thing to do with your beds that you're not going to, let's say, garden through is to cover crop them. Plant kayaso, plant vetch, plant bell bean, plant anything like that, any kind of winter pea. Austrian winter pea is another great one. Uh, my favorites, I just gave them to you Austri for the winter. Austrian winter pea, vetch, and either hairy or purple vetch, kayasote, um, and, uh, I, I'm sorry, Austrian winter pea, kayasote, and hairy or purple vetch. Some other ones that are great cover crops that, that really have a huge uh, a boost for you will be some of your cover crop mustards uh, and things like oilseed radish or daikon radish. Uh, and the daikon radish and the mustards with the long tap roots are great because you can cover crop with those. You can cut the tops off and leave them in your soil. And you'll have this material in your soil. And when it comes to spring, you know, do a little top dressing and just plant in. Don't turn it over. And those, those radish roots or those mustard roots, as they sit in the soil and die, will become little reservoirs of water. Uh, you can do the same thing with turnips, except you might be more likely to want to pull those out and actually eat them. Uh, well, there's nothing wrong with doing but those are some cover crops that we can do. And cover cropping both the beds and areas around the bed are a good idea because then in the spring, I have a huge source of mulch, right? So I know some of you live in suburban lots having this, you know, big giant high thing of Caius oat. Another thing is triticale is a great one that won't reseed itself because it's sterile. Uh, but there's some great seeds and Peaceful Valley Farms is like my go-to place for cover crops. You can do clovers and stuff like that too. Uh, but they're a little bit harder to get rid of come spring if you don't want them coming back. I don't really see it as a problem. I do a lot with clover as well, uh, but not so much in the garden bed itself. So cover cropping, I think, is huge. And I think another thing that we need to look at, and by the way, it's a source of both compost material and mulch, is heavy harvest of the summer crops. Um, we just basically let the one big long bed that we did, that we polycultured like crazy, go nuts. And everything around it go nuts. And I had buckwheat and millet and all types of things planted around it and natural weeds that came up, black medic came up, all kinds of stuff came up. And there was freaking pumpkins 10 feet away from the bed, gourds, you know, probably 50 feet away from the bed. Uh, there were, it was just crazy mess. And I've just gone through there with, with a, basically a corn knife is what I've been using because they're cheap. And when you, when you smack a rock with one and break it, you're not out a bunch of money. You can get them at tractor supply again. It's called a corn knife and it looks like a, a, a sickle. And, uh, I've been going through there and I just take my wheelbarrow along with me and I stack any, any squash or winter squash or anything that I find along the way. As I'm opening up, I'm finding pepper plants that were kind of outcompeted. And since it's, they still got a good 60 days behind them, I'm just opening up and let them out. There's sweet potato vine everywhere, and I'm taking the sweet potato vines back onto the beds and burying the vine. I'm getting uh, tuber set on my sweet potatoes. So as I'm doing that, and I'm clearing all this out, I'm hitting these huge wheelbarrows full of mulch. Well, at first, some of them went down to the regular garden beds. Then some of them went to an area I'm kind of turning into pasture. Now they're going on both sides of the bed to build the soil on the sides of the bed and hold and suppress weeds down. Eventually, some of it will go straight onto the beds as they get planted for their winter crops. So when you have these massive harvests, a lot of times there's a lot of additional material that come with them between weeds, surrounding brush, and the plants themselves as you're cutting down their bodies. Think about cutting down a corn. Right? When you start cutting down a bed full of corn, uh, instead of putting all of those stalks into a big pile and having them dry out while they're wet, get a corn knife or a machete or some kind of good chopping tool and just stand there and just whack them into about like two, three inch pieces. Let that stuff hit the ground. Let it be mulch. It's great for that. Um, so there's all types of amaranth. You got all of that woody material that can be chopped up. And if you chop it the day you cut it, You, you can literally stand there and just whittle it off like you're whittling off a stick. If you let that stuff dry, it's a lot harder to chop up. So cut it, chop it into pieces, let it go straight to the ground. Or put it straight on the bed. Use it for mulch. It's beautiful for that. You created all this organic matter. Why take it away and then bring mulch in from another source? The other thing to think about is these heavy harvests. If you look at today's uh, show notes, episode 978 on the main website, um, you're going to see a pretty big harvest. It's a one-day harvest. Uh, it's about, I don't know, four, four Hollis pumpkins, five regular pumpkins, a New York cheese pumpkin, 
and literally over a thousand jalapenos. I don't really know how many there are. The, the, the pile of jalapenos is unbelievable. My wife and I just spent two days, not full days, but two days of work, uh, to slice them up. We ended up with like 12 trays. Uh, processing through the nine tray uh, dehydrator, and uh, so it had to be two different days. In fact, the other second batch is, is in the dehydrator right now and will get jarred up. We'll end up with about um, four pint jars of dehydrated jalapenos. That's enough for a year for us. I don't use that many dehydrated jalapenos. And this mid-term harvest is what I get here. Right, this is I get big jalapenos. And not that, I get a lot of them, but not as many as I do in kind of the middle. And then in the middle of the season, like now, I get just tons of smaller ones. And then I'll go in and I just clean them out. Anything that's green, that's, uh, that's big or red comes out and then gets done into this, this part of the process, both fermentation, pickling and dehydrated. And then some of the plants, they've just gotten really out of hand. I prune them back a little bit. This stimulates them and I'll get at least till Halloween without a frost here, and unless something freaky happens. And th what I'll get now is a, a heavy harvest of larger jalapenos. So you got to be prepared to deal with this. The pumpkins are nice because they store so well. I just put them aside till I want to do something with them. There's also a huge pile of sweet peppers in that picture. So today we got to go home, and we're leaving on Thursday to go to Hickory, North Carolina. So today we're going to sit down, and between what we picked uh, yesterday or the day before and what we'll pick today, we're going to be chopping... Sweet peppers, and since we have plenty of those dehydrated already this year, uh, well, the ones that don't get eaten fresh right away will get put into freezer bags and frozen and used in cooking. So this is also a time to deal with this heavy harvest coming in. My grandmother this time of year would be canning chow chow. That would be her thing. I'd be bringing up everything I can get, and today's chow chow canning session would be a little different than tomorrow's because different things would be available. But think about what to do with all that heavy harvest and put aside some time. So, because this is why I'm, I'm even saying this today. This is what happens. People, they limp their garden through the summer. They kind of just get tired of it in August. And then all of a sudden it kicks in in September. And a lot of the stuff, if you've lost the habit of going out there and picking stuff all the time because it got weak in August, goes to waste. It rots on the vine. So this is a time to clean things up, even if you're not pulling the plants out yet. Prune some things. If you got pepper plants and like the limbs are hanging back to the ground, prune that sucker like a rose bush, man. We had several like really long, crazy hanging to the ground things on our jalapeno plants that had you know 50 peppers on one limb, and half of them were small. I just cut the whole thing off, yanked all the peppers off. They're getting dehydrated anyway. Doesn't matter if they're small. And now these plants are kind of they they there's very little fruit left on them. They're stimulated to blossom. There's other things you can do that with. So that's kind of like bed maintenance, end of season, all of it rolled up into one. Next, we need to think about getting ready for our fall crops. And before I talk about what we're going to plant, we need to make some decisions. Do we want to protect these crops and get them in get them to produce later in the season? The answer when we ask the question is almost always yes. And there's some different ways that we can do that that I'll kind of hold up on for a section at the end called Getting the Edge on Winter. But it's just important that, you know, at this point in the program, we mentioned we're going to ask that question. Do we want to protect these plants? And if the answer is yes, we need to start thinking about exactly how we're going to do that. And we can do that with row covers, micro greenhouses, lots of stuff that we'll talk about. But... Just be asking the question. Where we really need to go to next, though, is starting seeds. Okay, and, and sometimes if we can plant a seed right now in the ground and it will germinate and do well and not be taken out by cutworms or deer or other pests, the best thing you can always do is direct sow your seed. When you direct sow a seed, the roots establish beautifully and they're never disturbed After that, they find their own way through the soil. There's no transplant shock, and they become much hardier, much sturdier plants. And a lot of plants that we think of starting from, you know, from from seed indoors, we can start from seed. I successfully started broccoli from seed last year. The stuff that was planted seed into the ground did better than the plants that were put into the ground. They're just cut and dry. Uh, but some of us, it's still too hot. Some of our fall crops, if we plant them in the ground now, they just won't germinate. It's too hot. Uh, with a lot of mulch and some good watering until that seed gets off the ground, you can get over that, but you need to be aware that some stuff just is, is going to have a hard time. And, and we just don't want it exposed to the full wrath of the, the last vestiges of summer sun 
right now. So like some lettuces, you know, that, that are good summer lettuces, plant them in the ground right now, they'll do just fine. But some that are, you know, the ones that will bolt on you in summer, maybe it's time to go ahead and set up a couple seed trays and plant some of those types of plants indoors. And start thinking exactly the way you would in spring in reverse. My first frost date is X. If this is a plant that won't survive the frost, then I need to have it in the ground by Y so that it will be mature by X. Right? It's, it's the same thing backwards. Right? So that's one of the things to think of. But the key is to go ahead and get it done. For some of you guys, it's too late. Maybe it's my fault. I didn't get on this early enough this year. But for you guys in the South, it's it's time right now. You need to be planting your 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 seeds for your your put out plants, the ones that you're going to put out. Um, and don't be afraid to do both, right? So let's say like I want to direct sow broccoli, but I'm not sure it's going to work. Broccoli seeds are cheap. If you plant for twenty, like two dozen broccoli plants in a bed and direct sow, go get yourself some seed trays. And plant 24 seeds in seed trays. And this is what you'll probably find. Some of the stuff in your bed will do good. Some of it won't. Where you have the sickly plant or the one that gets hammered by the cabbage flies at the end of the year, the one the deer eats, take one of your seed tray plants and backfill it. And this is the best way I know to get the best of both worlds. Uh, to have kind of this redundancy. Two is one and one is none in the garden. And a lot of things that you want to plant, cabbages, broccoli, etc., things like that, that do well from transplants, that's the way to do it. Go ahead and put it in the garden, and maybe you don't even start as many starts as you, as you need spaces in the garden. You know some of it's going to make it. So if you put out 24, do, you know, two dozen, do a dozen in seed trays. And if you end up with everything coming up in extra plants, give them away, work them in somewhere. It's almost impossible to have too many plants. There's always something can be done. There's always a plant that, you know, it's doing good and the freaking dog steps on it and kills it. Or it's doing great and you come out and a raccoon yanked it out of the ground. He didn't even eat it. He just wanted to know what it was. And he was curious. There's always something that happens. So having these seed-started plants able to backfill is a great way to deal with that. Um, and also it's a good time to be looking to nurseries if you, if you don't start your own seeds uh, or, you, you know, you're kind of late to the game this year and you want to get stuff in the ground. It's a great time to be going around your nurseries, your box stores, and places like that and asking for fall plants. What you'll find a lot of times is in some areas, fall gardening is so popular, there's tons of plants available. Some places, a lot of places, there's, there's almost none. There's very little in Arkansas, in this area of Arkansas, in Hot Springs area, that I can find for my fall gardens. When I go to Texas, there, it's everywhere. Every nursery, every box store, every place has fall plantings. But if you find that you have a nursery that doesn't do all their own plantings, that they do get them from a supplier, like Bonnie is one of the bigger ones, if you talk to them and say, I would like to do some fall planting and I'd like two flats of broccoli and two flats of cabbage, if you ask them now, they can still get them for you. Even if they, and, and they'll you know, say, I'll pay for them. Some of you, sometimes you have to pay for them in advance. But they'll get them for you. So that's another thing that you can be doing right now. If you're behind the eight ball and can't find stuff to source locally, especially your family-run places, your family-run places that do use third-party suppliers that don't do all their own startings will often be able to get that done for you. Uh, they'll just say to their supplier, hey, bring me, you know. And usually when they have one person, they'll bring in a few extra flats because they've already got it paid for. So that's, that's another thing we can be doing right now. I want to talk about some of the things we can grow in the fall that will do really well, even well into the northern climates. So I'm going to go with some of the hardiest stuff today. And with a little bit of protection, you can probably grow most of this stuff past Christmas, even in some of the coldest parts of the country. Now, some of you guys live on the tundra of Alaska. Look, you need a greenhouse and you need heating in it. I mean, that, they're, they're, realize there's limitations to what we can do. I get people all the time, Jack, how do I grow a forest in the middle of the Sahara Desert? I don't know, dude. I don't. I just, you know, it's really, there's limitations. But within reason, most of these things will do well for you. <clears throat> my favorite, my absolute favorite fall crop is spinach. God, I love to grow spinach in the fall. It's, it's so amazing. I even like it better than the spring. Our, our springs warm up so quickly down here. And our days start to lengthen so quickly that a lot of times you have spinach and it's doing so great. And all of a sudden there's that seed head and it's 
bitter and it's not the same. In the fall, that stuff will hold. It will grow. You cut it. It comes back. You cut it again. It comes back. And it's salad city. I mean, it seems to me like most people love their salads in the summer. I don't really like salads in the summer that much. I, I'll eat one if somebody makes it, but I'm never motivated to go out and make one, you know? I like my salads in the fall and the spring and the winter. And I think it's because I live in the South where that's when this stuff grows. And I think you start to realize as you start to garden through four seasons instead of just one or two, you start to realize your body starts to actually crave what will grow locally when it's available. That doesn't mean you still might not you know, throw down on some Maine lobster when you live in Florida, right? But especially the plant life, you start to really crave sweet potatoes and parsnips and turnips and venison and stew in the fall when all that stuff's just available. Like your sweet potatoes grew through the summer, but you harvested them in the fall. You've got the parsnips in the ground. You've got the carrots in the ground. you you got some parsley growing because it handles the cold, you know, and you go outside and you cut a big old head of parsley off. You yank a couple carrots out of the ground, a couple parsnips, maybe a turnip. You go to your pantry. You get out your sweet potatoes. You chop that up. You get some venison, you know, like shoulder roast or something that's good for stewing. You cube it up, you throw a couple pieces of bacon in the bottom of your pan, you brown that, you throw your, you roll your venison a little bit of flour, just a little bit to give it a light coating, you brown it, you start to build up a stock with that, you maybe use some bone stock, make some deer, deer bone stock, easy as pie guys, here's how you do it. Get all the bones that are left over from your deer after you butcher it, you can do this with beef bones too, put it in a big roaster pan, roast them till they're brown. Dump the bones and all the juice that comes out of them into a giant stock pot, Fill it with water. Simmer it down till it's about half full. Fill it up. Simmer it down. Do that about five times. Store that off to the side. Use that when you cook. Unbelievable. So you add the bone stock, a little bit of water to build it up. And then you you know, you know simmer that for a while. The venison gets tender. In go all the vegetables. It's amazing. But it's when you start to garden into that season, into that winter season, that late fall season, that that stuff starts to like really congeal for you and you're producing that. And there's so many things that go into that that you can't get in the summertime. So it's a great excuse to, you know, build that fall garden. Chard is another one. Now chard is the one that I love because I plant chard in the spring. I cut it through the summer. It grows back. I cut it in the fall. It grows back. It grows into the, it grows into the winter. And down here in this climate, you know, it goes biannual and puts up seed for you in the second spring. So it's a year round hardy crop. And it's basically beet. It's in the beet family. Uh, so it will, it will handle the same type of weather fluctuations beets will, except that it will handle the heat. So where sweet, you know, like, uh, like red beets and golden beets and things like that, they just don't handle the heat. They, they don't do well in the summer, at least not for me. But the char just rocks on through all the seasons. So that definitely goes on your list of really hardy winter, hardy, fall hardy crop. Next up is beets. Um, I, Grew up with pickled beets being what I knew about beets. And I like them, okay. Uh, but my favorite use of a pickled beet is to get somebody eat all the other beets out of the jar. So you have a big jar full of that purple beet juice. And then boil some really nice fresh laid eggs. And then stick them in there and put a lid on it and stick that in the refrigerator for about two weeks. And then have those purple nurples is what we used to call those eggs. And drink that with beer and get kicked out of bed that night from your wife. But they so good it's worth it. Especially watching fall football. Um, but when I first tried fresh beets, so you're making that, that, that fall salad and you get a, you know, a grater out and you take a fresh golden beet and you just run that across the coarse side of a, of a cheese grater and you shred that golden beet into that salad. Oh my God. It, it's, it's like a totally different experience. Fresh beets, roasted beets, uh, and I am going to try lacto-fermented beets, but if you can't grow beets, it's either really the ground's frozen cold or you're doing something wrong. Beets are so hardy, so resilient, such good germination rates. Um, so beets definitely go on the top of the list for hardiness. Uh, garlic. This is a great time of year to plant garlic. Now, what you really should be doing this time of year is yanking garlic out from the, the plant. And as soon as you yank it out, replanting garlic. And my favorite way to do this is to plant enough garlic that I'll have all the garlic I need, and I can take about 10 heads of garlic, break them up immediately, and put the cloves right back into the ground and start the process over again. Uh, once you get garlic really growing good for you, you should never have to buy garlic again. And that's why buying really good strains of heirloom quality garlic 
uh, is is just a great idea. Now, what I've always grown, though, is I, I really like hardneck garlics, but I'm going to start growing softnecks because the idea of doing the braiding with the garlic is, is, is and being able to hang it up and store it that way is very appealing to me, and you want softnecks for that. So I'm going to look at doing some softneck garlic. Uh, I don't know if I'll do it because we probably won't own this property uh, by this time next year when harvest comes along, but that'll be kind of going forward. What I want to do is move into the softneck world of garlic. I just think it's an awesome way to be able to store things if you have a right storage facility for it, and we'll definitely be putting one in. Uh, but garlic is a great thing to be planting right now. Onions and leeks. Um, you can plant like bunching onions. You can go out like right now and plant a little patch of onions. And then go out next week and plant a little patch of onions. And then go out next week and plant a little patch of onions. And then go out next week and pull the onions that you planted in the first week, some of them out of the ground, and plant another patch of onions. And by the time you get into your fourth week, you're basically pulling and planting onions every week. And you can do that through some of the coldest part of the year. You'll eventually get to a point, especially in northern climates, where the soil is so cold you won't get good germination. But a little bit of protection, a little bit of supplemental heat of some sort, and you might be able to do it straight through. Down here, we can. Uh, northern Pennsylvania, probably not so much. But you can still get a lot of onion production, especially with your bunching onions. Leeks are another great thing. Leeks are something that are so underutilized in America. You always see them in the grocery store. I almost wonder why they're there because I almost never see anybody buying them. But a roasted leek has a sweetness and a quality that's different than a plain old onion. Uh, it's very different. It's something you almost have to try. I know Chef Keith Snow is really fond of braised leeks, and he recommends that as one of the things you can put on the Thanksgiving table. Uh, well, you got plenty of time between now and Thanksgiving to get a crop of leeks and to be able to put that on the Thanksgiving table. And you got plenty of time to be able to put that up for Christmas dinner, too. And I'll tell you, if you've never tried braised or roasted leeks, give it a shot. It's something a bit different, and it's a very easy thing to grow. I guess my second favorite next to spinach of fall and winter crops is broccoli. I love broccoli. I love steamed broccoli. I love grilled broccoli. I love broccoli with cheese sauce. I love broccoli with some bacon and a little bit of bacon grease drizzled on it. I love steamed broccoli with red pepper flakes. I love broccoli. I didn't think I liked broccoli when I was a kid because what I got for broccoli was that crap with the green giant dude on it that you microwave that came out all goopy and gooey and crappy. Uh, but broccoli rocks. And the, the, the big thing about broccoli to me is that at this time of year, you almost never get like a uniform harvest. Like you'll get a couple heads really big and then there's a couple more that can go a few more days. So you go ahead and cut them and you eat it. And you, you keep doing that. And eventually you get through cutting your whole bed of broccoli. But by that time you got all these side shoots coming up. You start cutting side shoots. And I can cut side shoots off broccoli right up until, uh, I'm ready to plant another succession of broccoli for the spring and hopefully get some production out of it before the heat, uh, pushes it too fast and, and, and sends it to bolt. Uh, I've almost given up on spring broccoli here. Uh, fall works much better for me. But the beauty of broccoli is it's so easy to preserve. You get a steamer or you get a pot with a little bit of water in it. Steam your broccoli for about two minutes until it starts to turn bright green. Not till it's all, not till it's like that, that crunchy bright green you would eat, but it's like got a bright green color to it. As soon as that color shows up, get it off. Dunk it in cold water. Alright? Rinse it off as best you can and then freeze it. And when you take that out and you put that on the grill or you steam it, just don't cook it too long and it'll come out almost like it's fresh. Way better than dehydrated or canned. And it's one of the vegetables that I always go with flash freezing. Here's a tip with your broccoli. If you do everything I just said, you end up with a broccoli lump. And you get this big gallon sack of broccoli and the only choice you have when you cook it is to take it all out at once. This sucks. Get a couple cookie sheets. Onto those cookie sheets, put some wax paper. When you're doing this with your broccoli, spread your broccoli out on a single layer. Stick it in your freezer. If you have a chest freezer, so much the better. Set your, your little timer on your microwave or your stove or your watch or your iPhone for 15 minutes. In 15 minutes, go open the freezer, take a gallon bag, pull it out. All of the, the water on the outside will have crystallized and frozen. Throw it straight into the bag, ziplock the bag, put it straight in the freezer. Don't take it. Don't take it to the, 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 the kitchen table to do this. Do it as quick as you can. Keep it frozen and right back in that freezer. When you take it out later, you'll be able to reach in there and pull out a handful or two handfuls or any amount of broccoli you want and use it individually. It won't all stick together. How cool is that? 
Broccoli, big time. Cabbage. Cabbage is a go-to winter crop. If you don't like cabbage, you probably haven't tried it enough ways yet. I've done lacto-fermentation shows recently, so I won't go over making sauerkraut other than to say it works. And here's an awesome recipe for sauerkraut, a real quick one. And I'm not going to give you even quantities. You can do it however you want to. Cabbage, carrots, shredded up like matchstick carrots. In fact, I will usually go ahead and buy organic matchstick carrots just because they're too much of a pain in the butt to make myself. And I'll put a couple handfuls of matchstick carrots in there. Get some Granny Smith apples, slice them up, Uh, and do so like, you know, like you got an apple slice, a typical apple, apple slice, like half, cut those in half and about maybe a quarter inch thick. So there's still some body to them and caraway seeds, mix that up and, and do your sauerkraut the way you always would in your crock or whatever you do. Absolutely phenomenal. And that on a cold winter day with a stout or a porter beer and slow cooked pork shoulder, right? With a big, and then you take your sauerkraut and you just put it at the end. Uh, you, you pull some aside, you know, because if you have a big pork shoulder, you don't want to cook out your sauerkraut too much. So you, you take like a big chunk off your sauerkraut or uh, off your pork shoulder, put a big thing of, um, big clump of sauerkraut on top of it, and just warm it till the sauerkraut warms and let the juice of the sauerkraut cook into the pork. Oh my God. And that's something you can grow yourself. And it's very easy to grow that. Uh, I've seen cabbage with snow on it and, and not care. Uh, just about anywhere. In, when I, we lived in Pennsylvania when I was a kid, and it was, you know, the 70s. It was a lot colder back then. We had colder winters than we're having today due to the solar cycle, not the carbon from your tailpipe. Um, anyway, um, it, I remember my grandfather going out, coming with snow on his coat, bringing heads of cabbage in. So, I mean, that is about as hardy as he gets. That, and I'll, I'll give you a bonus here with Brussels sprouts. I'm not a huge fan of Brussels sprouts until recently I tried them fresh. And I went, well, that's different. Um, it was another one of those things that, you know, my only experience had been mushed up, nasty, gross, frozen Brussels sprouts. And I'm not going to eat those. And fresh Brussels sprouts are really awesome. Kale. Kale is, uh, is a go-to winter crop. It's out of the Brassia family, like the cabbage, like the broccoli. Um, and it's something that a lot of people grow now for, like, ornamental purposes. But it's really a great thing to cook. Steamed kale. You steam it to soften it, and then finish it by braising it like in some baking grease, little toasted sesame seeds on top of that. Try that. That's awesome. There's a million ways to kale. Just stick kale recipes, K-A-L-E, for those that are maybe not familiar with this vegetable, into, uh, into Google. Kale recipes, and you'll find all kinds of ones. Go over to Chef Keith Snow at carbaceating.com. Type in kale. Uh, you'll get his recipe, one of his go-to recipes. I think he does sesame seeds, as I was talking, but I don't think he does it with baking grease. Uh, like I do. But kale is such a, a kind of a, a tough crop that you can actually, you know, really steam it really heavily to where it's almost fully cooked. And you can freeze that. And, you know, that is going to be hard to keep separate, like I said, the broccoli. So put it in serving side packaging in your freezer and then bring it out and then go ahead and braise it to finish it off. So, and then the other thing is it holds so well that there's really no reason to store too much of it because you can go out and pick it as you need it all winter long. Uh, Red Russian Kale, one of the greatest varieties for that. Lasiando Kale, I think it's how you pronounce it. It's also known as Dinosaur Kale. That's Italian. The, the Italian Lasiando and the Red Russian are two of my favorites out of the kale family. They look very different. They taste very similar. Um, next up, carrots. Carrots are something I like to successively crop throughout uh, the winter. So it's just kind of like I was talking about with the onions. You plant some. When they come, what I like to do with carrots is as soon as they all come up and I thin them out, Because you can never do one seed. It's just ridiculous. You do little pinches. And you do like a small area that's going to yield like, let's say, a dozen carrots. And once you get it thinned out and you've got your dozen carrots nicely spaced, then go ahead and do another dozen. And, and that way you don't end up out there for hours and hours thinning carrots. And you end up with this nice successive harvest throughout the season. And those go great in your stews and stuff like I was talking about. And there's nothing like a fresh carrot. I don't, I have never eaten a carrot. I don't care how nice the farmer's market is or how great Whole Foods is or how organic it is. I have never eaten a carrot that tastes like a carrot that I go outside, pull out of the ground, wash up, chop up, and eat now. It's, it's, it's an unbelievable difference. And that holds through when you cook with them. Stews made with fresh carrots, the carrot kind of comes out into the, to the, to the broth of the stew at a higher level when that carrot's fresh like that. And lettuce. And, and lettuce I'm going to lump in pretty much. If it's green, leafy, it'll probably do okay. 
And this is a great time to go out and plant 10 different kinds of lettuce and make those salads up with all those different lettuces mixed together. Uh, really great stuff. Arugula can go into that uh, list as well. And I'll tell you, I mentioned it kind of in passing, but here's another bonus for you, parsley. Um, parsley, I would prefer that you had already planted But you can still plant it, and it's also something that if you live in an area where they do fall gardening in the nurseries where you can get plants, you can probably always find parsley plants. Parsley will rock right through the winter. Now, in spring, it's probably going to send up seed heads, and, and, and you'll lose the ability to, to use the herb the way you're accustomed to it. But fresh parsley in your stews and your soups all winter long, man, that is just awesome. So consider parsley as well. A uh, couple more things I want to talk about. One I want to talk about is tool maintenance. This is also a great time of year to do some basic tool maintenance. Your shovels, your rakes, your things like that. It's really easy, but it's so often not done. The best thing you can do, um, hose them off, get a wire brush, knock any additional dirt and rust and anything off them, and give them a good coating of, uh, of oil. I mean, that's, that, that's really what to do. You don't want it to have like slathered dripping in oil because eventually you're going to stick this thing in the ground again. But give it a, a gentle coating of oil, and um, uh, I personally like to use linseed oil for this. Um, it's a it's a natural product. Even that though, any excessive amount of oil can be detrimental to plants. So you want it this thin coating of oil. You can always wipe the tools off, but it, before you use them a little bit. But uh, it really, I think people overthink this a lot. But just making sure you get them good and cleaned, uh, knock the rust off them with a uh, with a, a, a wire brush, and if you have wooden handled tools. Um, and if the finish is worn off them to where the, you can feel the wood grain, uh, a good coating of linseed oil on that wood grain will preserve them for a long time. I actually would prefer to buy tools if they have wooden handles that are not finished with a varnish or a select. I would prefer to saturate them with linseed oil. You can't do it when that shellac's on there because the oil won't penetrate and it just gets sticky and nasty. But when you have exposed wood, and I have taken some tools that came with a coated handle that had an easy way to remove the, the head of the tool, taken the handle off, completely sand the uh, varnish off, and soaked it in linseed oil and put it back together. And I'll tell you, for wood-handled tools, if you want to extend the life of the handle, there's nothing that will do it like linseed oil. Uh, tongue oil works pretty good too, but linseed oil is inexpensive. And it works great. One big caution with any oil, oily rag, especially linseed oil, though. Once that rag's been used for linseed oil, it needs to be stored in a metal container. Um, if, it's, if it's exposed to sun, it definitely will. And even without it, it can spontaneously combust, basically. Um, I wanted to show my wife exactly how this works, so I took a, a rag recently saturated in linseed oil. And uh, I put it in the... Uh, the smoker box of our barbecue grill where I knew it would get heated up in the sun and we went out the next day and it was incinerated uh, just to make the point because I, I think she looked at me a little bit strange when I said it could just catch on fire but it, it does happen uh, so you need a proper way, way to uh, contain that or go ahead once the rag's been used enough and, and, and go ahead and burn it uh, but sealed without oxygen is the best way uh, in a metal container uh, you're probably not going to have any problems with that but out of the sun if it's a, you have a metal container in the sun you put rags of linseed oil in it the metal container will contain the flames but you're going to incinerate everything it'll look like char cloth when you open it please be careful with oily rags folks i'm telling you they do start fire but the big thing is to just take a little bit of time here for some tool maintenance anything that needs to be sharpened hit it with a file or a stone give it a sharpening uh all of your pruners anything with moving parts give it a good coating of oil uh and and, and knock the rust off of it i think that you'll find that uh and put it away in your tool shed if you're not going to be using it much through the winter that you'll be much happier in the spring uh if you do that now Uh, very easy to do, kind of just fits in with everything else you're doing anyway. And then I want to talk now just a little bit at the end about what I call getting the edge on cooler weather. Like, how do we how do we extend our season even more? Like, yeah, the lettuce will survive the cold and the frost and all, but how do we keep it growing robustly? What are some things we can do to to uh, to, to to gain a little bit on winter and 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 get even better results? One thing we can do is understand that one of the things that really affects plants in this time of year is wind. 
and putting in some wind breaks. And I've gone as far as like in early spring, especially when I put stuff in early and I'm trying to get it through to, to mid-spring to go out with some pieces of plywood or whatever and build walls right in front of the bed. And not permanent walls, just kind of prop it up. Just especially in Texas with these heavy spring winds or heavy fall winds. Uh, and that's usually not what we're talking about. But if that can be done, it's kind of an emergency response if you have some material around that you can build a windbreak very close on the prevailing wind side of your plantings. But what makes a lot of sense to do is plant things like holly bushes, uh, evergreens of whatever type on the windward side of your prevailing winter winds. And to do that, one of the things we need to know is, well, what, what direction do the winds usually come from? And the reality is the thicker that windbreak is and the closer it is to the garden, the more effective it'll be. There's always limitations and constraints. Uh, one of the great things about people in the suburbs is all those privacy fences are natural windbreaks. They also can create wind tunnels, so you need to kind of take a look at things like that. For your prevailing wind, pay attention. Keep a journal. Go outside, you know, two or three times a day and write down the direction of the wind whenever the wind's blowing through your, through the next winter. And you'll, you'll have an average knowledge of which way is prevailing. A lot of things though we can learn just by looking. If you look at trees and you notice that they always lose their leaves on one side before the other, that's probably the side the wind's hitting. Or if the branches are kind of elongated and stretching away, that's the direction the wind is probably blowing the majority of the year. There's usually something that will show you what's going on if you pay attention. If you look at exposed soil, you can see wind patterns. If you look at buildings, generally you can see solar and wind patterns on buildings if there's areas where a lot of material is blown and accumulated. If you notice that going down the street, the leaves are always accumulating on one side of the houses on that street, Guess what? That's your prevailing wind telling you where it is right there. So that's one of the big things is wind breaks and just understanding where that wind's coming from so that we can properly break it. Things like pit gardens. you know, Just like we might want to raise a garden up, we might want to put a garden down into the ground. That creates a natural wind break and it creates a heat trap. So that's another thing we can do. Southern exposure is huge. What we really want to do is make sure that wherever we're doing the majority of our gardening for the fall, that we have good southern exposure because we have shorter days. We only got so much sunlight, so we want as much of it as possible for as long as possible on whatever we're growing. Uh, using that southern exposure, we can do things like build specifically beds that are you know, designed to be optimum for our, our winter gardening. What we can do if we have a slope facing south is we can build up a retaining wall of stone facing south and fill that with gardening material and that stone wall becomes a heat sink and all day long the sun hits that stone wall and then through the evening it's released um, we can take just big rocks just put big rocks big stone rocks into your garden this time of year if you don't like them there all year you can remove them when spring comes but you'll find that the plants closest to those rocks thrive and grow better why that rocks a heat sink Well, I think is rocks are the enemy in a garden. Rocks are so advantageous. One thing we know about a rock, when it rains, 100% runoff. So if we take a rock and we channel its, its angle somewhere, we know that you know if we have a square foot of rock and it's outside of our bed channeled into our bed, that's an extra square foot of rain that's going to be channeled into that area of our bed and give greater irrigation. It's a heat sink. We can also use rocks to create windbreaks. See, all of these things that we look at as being a problem are often solutions. That's a permaculture principle. Row covers. Um, if you don't want to go full tilt bore on like mini greenhouses or tarpaulin or building a structure or something like that, row covers are great. They're lightweight. They're easy to put out. They're easy to pull in. They breathe so that you don't have to definitely open them up. They provide a lot of pest protection. You can get them from very, very thin and very little protection to more protection. They also let light through. Uh, so they're a great option. And then Mini greenhouses, micro greenhouses. I've told the story many times, but I will again for those that didn't hear it yet. Um, I've done things like just taking old fish tanks in a lettuce bed and covering the lettuce with the fish tank. Uh, and whenever it's going to be a really, really warm day, removing the fish tank. And I get growth that's five, six times the unprotected plants. Even though the unprotected plants survive. One of the huge advantages of doing beds in standard dimensions Like let's say a five by you know a, or let's say a five by ten foot bed or a four by eight foot bed is that you can basically build a rector set style um, mini greenhouses. 
So you can go out to Home Depot or Lowe's and buy some fittings and PVC pipe and build yourself a frame that will fit straight over that bed. And since you have a standard size bed, it'll fit over any bed that you ever have. You can disassemble it in the spring. You can reassemble it in the fall. You cover it with some plastic. You're good to go. And if you just, you know, basically use some things to weight it down or clamp it to, you know, three of your four sides, that gives you a side and a, and a top that can be rolled back and opened when it's really warm out and closed down when you need the protection. If you have hard frame structures around your beds in the wintertime, you will go out and cover your crops whenever there's a frost or a freeze warning. If you don't, you'll be out there fighting the wind, angry, and eventually you'll just give up and say it's not worth it anymore this year. And again, with PVC and fittings and not gluing them together or only gluing together, let's say, the, the outer frames so that we can just push the things together in the, in the, uh, in the, in the spring when we're done with the, the protection, we can just go out and disassemble those things and put them back into our greenhouse. Um, there's other things we can do. We can, to make this really easy as well, go out and get some plastic material, good thick stuff that's going to last a long time. Uh, put some PVC pipes into the ground, uh, maybe let's say one inch pipes into the ground as your, your, your basis, right? Your, 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 your what's ever going to hold everything down. Now, get half inch PVC, which bends really, really easily. And then, Just make a hoop house, basically, by sticking the half-inch PVC inside the pieces of one-inch PVC that are driven into the ground, however many you need, like a covered wagon, across your entire bed, right? Now, here's the key to not being frustrated all the time. Go out and get some pieces of one-by-two one by wood, okay? And then make those one-by-twos the same length as your bed and make sure that your plastic is a few feet longer than your bed on both sides. So if you have a 10-foot bed, you want probably 16 feet long plastic. Three feet of plastic extending beyond your 1x2s. Make a sandwich. So you need four 1x2s for each piece of plastic. I'm going to tell you why in just a minute. You're going to love this. So on the very end, the long end of your plastic, lay down the plastic on there. Get a staple gun. Staple the plastic to the 1x2. Take the other one by two, put it on top like a sandwich, and use nails and tack the two one by twos together. Do this on both sides of your plastic so that if you and a friend pick it up, it's like holding a really deep stretcher. Like you'd haul somebody on, but you got this three feet of extra plastic hanging off the side. Got this? Lay the one by two down on, on the ground on one side of your bed. Take the other one by two, make sure it's wide enough when you, when you, when you measure your plastic and cut it. Cover your bed. Now you've got these long flaps on the end. All you do with those is get a, a couple pieces of wood, let's say two by fours, cheap ones, cut about the, the width of your bed. So if you have a four foot bed, you got a four foot uh, two by four, and you just take it and you roll the excess up and you push it up against the side of your bed. It's completely covered, right? Here's the key. When you need to go out and open it so it can breathe, all you do is unroll your, your two by four. And then just just roll it up and, and you know tie it up on the sides and open the sides. If you need to open the whole thing, it's going to be really warm out. Fold your sides over. Take one side of your, your sandwiched one-by-twos and then roll it up like a shower curtain all the way back over to the other side. When you need to go out and redeploy it, you just unroll it. It keeps everything nice. When it comes time to put it away for the year, you get several seasons out of good heavy plastic Lay it stretched out on the ground, fold your sides in, roll up one of your one-by-two sandwiches, and you end up with a long pole, and you just put it away. How cool is that? So now you've got it easy. You're not going to fight the wind. You're not going to have to deal with stuff like that. Um, you could probably do your sides with one-by-twos as well, and then when you roll them up, it'll just roll up on that. But I think you'll find it, it better serves you to... Uh, To, to not try to make those ends have wood on them. It'll be easier to manage. I've never tried doing the ends that way, but this is a great way to just create very quick, easy to open your ends, um, easy to keep everything weighted down, and easy to open the whole thing if it's a really hot day and you don't want the plants baking under that plastic. And it's so quick and easy that way, so easy to put away, the big thing is you'll do it. So that's kind of another thing. So Uh, I'm not going to go into greenhouses today. We've, we've run out an hour. I think a greenhouse is a great idea. A heated greenhouse is even a better idea, whether you heat it with wood heat, whether you heat it with electrical heat. 
The only takeaway I want to give you on greenhouses today is even if you heat a greenhouse, it doesn't mean it needs to be heated all the time. It just means that, okay, when it's going to be really cold that night, then we'll go ahead and apply some heat. If we have mostly things in there that are able to handle frosts and freezes and temperatures down to 25, uh, let's say, then we only need to heat on nights where we're going to go below that. And even in a lot of northern climates, that's not every night, and that's not even every week. I know some of you guys like in northern Montana or up in Maine, you're, you're laughing now and you're like, dude, it freezes here for two months solid. I understand that. But, you know, it, if that's your case, then you need a, a more, uh, a better heating solution uh, to get through your evenings and your nights. But the, the key is there's always something that can be done. So hopefully this has kind of jogged your mind, given you some ideas, some things like that for your fall gardening, made it cool. We've covered cover cropping. We've covered good garden crops. We've covered windbreaks. We've covered, covered using solar exposure. We've covered how to make biochar. We've covered how to make easy covers for your garden using PVC and plastic. Uh, how to make them easy to put away, how to make it, you know, how to maintain your tools. I think today is an awesome show and hopefully it, you know, kind of puts you into a different gear from kind of tweaked out Jack yesterday. Uh, tomorrow I'm going to have a good show for you. Uh, I'm going to have a guy from 180tac.com talk to us about wilderness survival and camp stoves and cool stuff like that. And then the next day we will have, uh, Mr. Stephen Harris. On generators and fuel storage, that's probably going to turn into a two-part show. There will not be a listener feedback show this week because I'll be in North Carolina. If Steve's show turns into a two-parter, uh, there'll be a show Friday with Steve. I'll try to knock that out. It's a lot to cram into a short week. We're out of here on Thursday, not Friday morning. Uh, so it's really a three-day week for us. So I'm going to do what I can and not leave you without too many shows while I'm away. But, of course, the best way to deal with that is come see me. In North Carolina, if you can. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another episode of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. It's in our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer, it's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Shut